0: All of you know by now that I have a weakness for Netflix. Netflix can lead you down rabbit holes you don't want to go in, but it also can enlighten you on some things that I think are really interesting. Lately, I've been watching a documentary series called Wild, Wild Country. You may have seen this on Netflix, but it is really wild. And why it's wild is not because of the landscape. It's wild because it tells the story of the Bhagwan Rajneesh cult, uh, which was very popular in the early 80s in the United States. Bhagwan Rajneesh is uh, Indian, and he had an ashram in India, and he found, as many, I'm sure, ashrams in India found, that streams of Americans and Europeans were showing up on their doorsteps in the 1960s and 1970s, looking for enlightenment. And many of them, of course, were very honest people and people trying to help in some way, but the Bhagwan Rajneesh, whatever his beginnings were, we found out it wasn't long before you realized that he was not the person that everybody thought he was. One of the things that made him different was that he's a person, unlike most uh, Hindu mysticism, which renounces wealth, was a person who embraced it readily. He had many Rolls Royces, and he enjoyed living in the lap of luxury. He noticed many Americans showing up on his doorstep, and so he decided amongst the leadership of his ashram that he would go to America and found an ashram there. So they bought a big piece of land in eastern Oregon. The documentary is really the story about the conflicts that happened between them and local residents. At first, of course, many times local residents were honestly uh, more uh, bigoted or they were worried because these are persons who look different and dress different. Then you began to realize that the people who bought this ranch, who had set up and desired to set up this ashram, started acting really strangely. There's a local village close to where the ashram was which had a population of 40 people. So as they moved in... They made sure that uh, people of their own movement were elected to become mayor, and so they did, and changed all the street names and started harassing residents. The county started to step in and say, you're building code violations and various things happening in the ashram need to be looked at. So here's where it got really weird. The uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh and his leadership sent out some of their followers to go around to restaurants in the county seat and to sprinkle salmonella on the salad bars in all the restaurants. Over 700 people fell deathly ill as a result of that. And they did this because they wanted to elect people to the county government to change building codes. And so, in order to reduce the voting population, they reduced the non-ashram voters by getting them sick and hoped to elect people to, county, uh, to the county seat. They did even worse things than this. There were attempted murders. There was uh, tax fraud and evasion. Eventually, the FBI and local law enforcement clamped down, and eventually the entire thing was shut down. There's an interesting story, though, because when they interviewed people, I think it was very well-balanced, that many people, even in leadership, were honest, and they were trying to do what was right, and many of the people who were there in the ashram said, I loved it because I felt so included and loved. And they seemed to be telling the truth. They felt this way. For what was obvious, however, is that those at the very top did not do what they did because of love for the people who came. They did what they did because they desired to take from them. The Bagwan Rajneesh, when they took all of his uh, assets, had 20 Rolls Royces. 20! I don't know how many Rolls Royces you can fit in at one time, but it's not going to be 20. Here is a person who had sheep who were lost coming to him looking for a shepherd, and instead of being a good shepherd, it was a person who simply fleeced the sheep and demanded obedience for, from them, even to sending them out to kill people you look at that, and I mention that because I realize that sometimes religious movements can get a justified reputation for being a movement that draws people in only to take from them and demands obedience from them because it desires servants to build up those who are leaders. And I think that situations like this are the very thing that makes it so difficult for us to listen to our gospel lesson today from John chapter 15. Because in John chapter 15, Jesus says many challenging things to us who have seen cults, who have seen bad leadership demanding obedience from subjects, and who misuse that. And it makes it hard for us when we listen to Jesus saying things like, you must obey my command. Instinctively and rightly, we wonder about it because we wonder whether this is simply another example of those who seek to abuse and to hurt those placed under their charge. I want to speak to you today about this passage, however, because I believe that this is not at all what Jesus is intending when he speaks about us following his command. Instead, this is a passage that encourages us to consider what it means to surrender in love to someone who loves us and who loved us since before we were born, and about the delights and joys in coming to a place where we can readily surrender to someone we can trust. As we look through it today, then, I'd like to suggest we look a little bit more closely at this passage to understand some of the things that can cause misunderstanding and then to give a little bit more focus on the things that really should encourage us. Here's the first thing that I think is easy for us to misunderstand. It's easy for us to misunderstand this passage by believing that Jesus wants us to do things so that Jesus can be built up, just like the Bagwan Rajneesh did the very same thing amongst his followers. And how is it that we can come to that misunderstanding? We can come to it because of a few verses, if taken out of context, and we look at them solely without looking at the background, it can cause us to be misled. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Then later he says, "Um, you are my friends, verse 14, if you do what I command you. That sounds a bit ominous, doesn't it? Or um, uh, Jesus says, I am giving you these commands. In other words, several different things where Jesus is saying, I demand that you follow my commands, times where Jesus is saying, somehow it almost seems as if my friendship is contingent on your obedience, how easy would it be for us to say, well, I know what Jesus is doing? He's like all the rest. He said he's the good shepherd, but he's not. He's out to fleece the sheep and to build himself up. But we'd be misunderstanding what Jesus is saying if we take it that way. Because after all, what Jesus says here is not, I want you to obey my command so that my joy might be complete. Instead, he says something quite different. He says in verse 11, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be complete. Jesus tells us the things that he tells us, not because he needs us to do it. He tells us the things he tells us because this will be of benefit to us, not to him. That's why Jesus, as he ends this, and people are probably scratching their heads saying, why is he telling us this? In verse 17, he ends his speech by saying, I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. I don't give you this command so that you will do things for me. I give you this command so that it will improve the richness of your relationship with the people around you. What I'm saying to you, I say for your benefit and the benefit of the people that you spend time with. This is not a story of a shepherd demanding things that he might be built up. It is the story of a person demanding things so that they might be built up. Here's the second misunderstanding that might happen. I read to you about how Jesus says a very striking statement in verse 14. He says this, You are my friends if you do what I command you. How easy is it to listen to this and say, Well, Jesus is giving us a fitness test, right? Here's the rules. If you can pass these challenges, then you will be worthy of my friendship And my love will come to you how often do we know churches or people we meet who are exactly like that maybe a church of a more fundamentalist sort of persuasion will say here you want to come to our church here's a list of rules you need to obey and if you really got your act together and you can climb over the great barriers we placed in front of you then you can come in no problem or think about the people that you may think You know, this person seems like a decent person. I'd like to get to know them, but they are very, very difficult to get to know because it seems as if the only friends they want are the ones who are accomplished, who are in the in crowd, the ones who have proven themselves socially adept enough to be worthy of their friendship. How many times do we experience that when we're in school? Well, those cliques can happen in church. They can happen in workplaces and in neighborhoods. The in crowd that excludes the out because they haven't made it up the ladder. And yet that's not at all what Jesus says. Listen to the way he speaks about his love and where it comes from. He says this. He says, "As the Father has loved me verse 9, so I have loved you abide in my love." Do you see the sequence? The Father loves me and I love you and then you go and love. My love comes before your love. Jesus loves us before we have the ability to love him in return. Or If we look at Jesus saying this, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Who's showing us what that great love is except the one, Jesus, who lays down his life for his friends. Friends, you'll remember, who all abandoned him when he was arrested and crucified. I am still laying down my life, even though you didn't prove yourself worthy. I am laying down my life because I love you before you're able to love me in return. Think of the criticism constantly given about Jesus is he eats with tax collectors and sinners. They're not worthy to receive a rabbi. They're not worthy to receive God's Messiah. We are. Why do you spend time with us? Jesus scandalizes everyone because his love is visited upon people not based on their worthiness, but based on the fact that they were made by God and bear God's image regardless of whether they are rich or poor, man or woman, slave or free, good or not good. So if those are misunderstandings, what is the true understanding Jesus is saying? After all, even if those misunderstandings are wrong, isn't it a little confusing when Jesus says things like, obey my commandments and abide in my love? Isn't love antithetical? Is it the opposite of commandment? I mean, after all, if somebody came to my church and I were to be introduced to them and I said, oh, you know what? I love you so much that I will give you a whole bunch of commandments to follow if you want to come to this church. I don't think that would go down very well. certainly doesn't work in romantic relationships, I'll tell you. (laughs) Here, however, is I think what Jesus is saying. And I think the best way of illustrating it is by looking at our own lives as parents or grandparents. If you're a parent or a grandparent or you have children that you see interacting with your parents, you'll know one of the most frustrating things that you have to deal with is convincing them that you're telling them the things you're telling them for their own good even if it doesn't seem obvious. My favorite personal example comes when they're toddlers and you're telling them, you need to share this toy with your sister. And you know what they all do, right? They stand up and say, you know, um, there's a problem in your logic here, Dad, and you may not have spotted this, but, but let me explain it for you. This thing, this toy, I'm enjoying. And if I give it to somebody else, I will not be enjoying it anymore. Do you see where I'm going with this, Dad? She's going to enjoy it. I'm not. It just doesn't make sense. Let's rethink this. Or another personal favorite is you call them for snack time and you put down some slices of apples and they say, do you know, you may not have remembered this, but there are some potato chips in the cupboard. And as I recall, potatoes are vegetables. So why don't we just have some potato chips instead of these apple slices? And you'll explain, and sometimes you'll explain to you blue in the face, and often it runs down to you outweighing them and saying, sure, you can go and have these apples, or you can have nothing, and you guard with your life the cupboard so they don't grab the potato chips out. (laughs) That's a frustrating situation. But here's the flip side that makes it a wonderful thing as a parent. One of the greatest joys you have as a parent when you go to a teacher-parent interview at kindergarten and you ask how your daughter's doing, you know, how is she? And the teacher says, you know what? I'm really impressed by the way she shares her toys with her classmates. <laughs> and you say like, no, no, I'm talking about my daughter. What's she doing? <laughs> right? You know why you love that? It's not just to pat yourself on your back. It's to say, wow. She's begun to realize that although her impulse is to say, I want this toy for myself, she's begun to trust you. She's begun to say that although what dad has told me to do doesn't feel right to me immediately, and it requires some sacrifice, I've come to believe that what my dad is telling me is actually something that is good for me. And I'm coming to believe that what he has told me is told me because he loves me. Same thing as when you come home and your kids are already home and they're fixing themselves a snack and you realize, what are they eating? They're eating apples and they're not eating the potato chips they could have stolen without you noticing. These are times that make you proud as a parent, glad as a parent, not just because you did a great job parenting, but because you see that your child is on the right track, choosing the right thing because a person they trust has shown them the right thing, rather than simply doing what their impulse says. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, follow my commandments and you'll abide in my love. I mean, after all, Jesus is a person who lays down his life for his friends. What does he say these things for? I'm saying these because when you follow my commandments, you will be abiding in my love. You will be resting in and trusting in me as your loving Messiah. This is what he says again. He says, If you keep these commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How did Jesus have the courage to go to the cross? He rested in the trust His father's love for him. I know this is hard and a moving. One of the most moving scenes in scripture in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus clearly doesn't want to do this. He, in the end, trusts his father because he believes that his wisdom and his love mean doing this is worth it. That's where Jesus, I think, wants us to come in our relationship to him. To trust in him, to know that when Jesus, you have called me to this, I believe that you are calling me to this because you love me. How wonderful it is to do the right, the moral thing in life, even when other people oppose you, knowing that you're resting in the love of God while you're doing it. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus says. And that's not just fuzzy words. It means when you're walking on the right path, you can be assured I'm right there with you. When you're resting in my trust and in my love, I am right there with you. When you're doing what is right, believe me, I am there with my grace to empower you because I know you're doing it because you love and trust me in response to the love I first gave to you. That's so important for us to grasp because it lets us realize that Jesus is not the harsh taskmaster we sometimes think he is. And he's certainly not the cult leader who fleeces his sheep. Jesus is all sufficient in himself. He doesn't need us to do anything. He wants us to do things because he knows what is best. Think of what Jesus says. He says, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. There is no greater joy than resting in the satisfaction that you are doing what is right, even against the difficult circumstances that push against you. I was thinking about this a little bit as we were thinking about uh, how we changed the mission statement recently to include particularly those words, moral honesty. And I was thinking about our discussions in board of directors and why this came up, and it's easily confused sometimes. If we were just to say, we believe in morality, how easy it is for us to think that we're the kind of church that says, you want a good marriage, here's 15 rules, follow them, and then your marriage will fit God's pattern. Or you want to be a good parent, here's 20 things you need to do in your style of parenting to make sure you're a godly parent. Now, Sometimes suggestions can help, of course, but it misses the point. What moral honesty is meant to get to is not to say here's all the rules and cringingly obey them. What we're trying to say is to say you need to ask on a regular basis to ask Christ, is this the way you want me to walk? I trust you, O Jesus. I believe in you, O Jesus. And I know that you want what's best for me. How do I best love my spouse? One of those great images Jesus gives is is we're told that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Am I honest enough with God to ask the way I'm speaking to my wife, the mood I'm showing to my wife, the way I help her with various things, does that reflect the love Christ has for His church? It's not that He's given me a list of rules. He's instead given me an aspiration to be the kind of man that I want to be and the promise that He will help me with it. Whereas mums and dads raising little children who can make our hair turn, uh, uh, turn gray, we look at them and we ask ourselves not, what are the 15 rules God gives us? We ask ourselves, Am I loving them in the same way that our heavenly parent loves me? Are we honest enough to ask God, am I walking with you because I trust you and I want to be the best parent that I can be? Same is true across the board. The encouragement for us is not, here's the rules and if you obey them, you're in and you don't obey them and you're out. The encouragement for us is to ask Jesus, I trust in you and will you show me the right way because I know that true joy comes when I follow the right way. Not because I'm afraid you'll stop loving me if I don't but because I love to abide in your love and feel your love on me as I do what pleases you. Here's our challenge as individuals. Here's our challenge as a church. If we're to bear great fruit, Jesus wants us to bear great fruit. Can we rest in his love and ask him honestly, are we doing the things that produces it? Are we loving each other in this church in the way that Jesus shows us? And if not, do we have the courage and honesty to open ourselves to him and say, Jesus, show us a better way? We find ourselves despairing at loving those enemies Jesus tells us to love. Are we opening ourselves up to Christ and saying, Christ, pour out your spirit so that we might do by your power what we can't do by ourselves? Our challenge is this, but our joy is also this. But Jesus says that my joy will be in you if you start to trust me and to open your life in a new way. Why not open our lives? Why not open our church to Christ in a new way? That through his spirit we might walk more powerfully in the way he's laid out for us. And by doing that, ensure that we produce great fruit that will last. After all, as Jesus says, we didn't choose him. He chose us before we even knew who he was. And he chose us because he knows us, he loves us for who we are, and he has great plans for all of us. There's no such thing as a purposeless life. There's no such thing as a meaningless and valueless life. And there's no such thing as these because Christ says there is meaning and purpose and value in our life. And let me show you what that purpose is and trust that I will walk with you if only you'll put your trust in me. Let's do it with courage.